This evening's reading is from Joel chapter 1, verses 1 to 20, which can be found on page 912 in the Church Bibles. That's Joel chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days, or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children, and let your children tell it to their children, and to their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan, the herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call. Fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. This is the word of God. Thanks, Anna. Earlier this week, in Nork at least, it was Flying Ant Day which um, is probably the worst of our national holidays, isn't it? I was walking Josiah home from nursery, and they were everywhere. The ground was crawling, the air was buzzing, and one briefly landed in my ear. It was gross. Um, But at least it wasn't a swarm of locusts. Sixty years ago, a swarm attacked California, and newspapers at the time described it in really biblical, Joel-like terms. The locusts covered every single inch across 200,000 acres. Um, If you imagine over 200,000 football pitches 
covered in insects, stacked on top of one another with nowhere to put your feet. Like it sort of sends shivers down your spine, doesn't it? The fields in California were left as bare as the floor. And hordes like that are not unheard of. A single female locust, if she lays her eggs in June, by October can have over 18 million living descendants. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Swarms have been recorded as wide as 2,000 square miles and as numerous as 10 billion insects. That's some more in one swarm than there are humans on the entire planet. Uh, The whirring of wings and crunching of jaws has been likened to a jet engine, and they can even block out the sun. These swarms are so devastating that there are international agencies devoted to spotting them with um, satellite technology and reconnaissance aircraft. They are natural disasters of the same magnitude as tsunamis, wildfires, and earthquakes. If we're to feel the impact of the book of Joel, we need to understand this magnitude of a locust invasion. We need to feel them crunching beneath our feet. We need to see them crawling over our furniture. We need to shout in order to hear one another over the sound of their wings. We need to register what it meant for a nation to lose a whole year's supply of food in just a few days. This is the event that this book was written in response to. We aren't told when in Israel's history this happened. We know there's a temple, so um, it could have been just before Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, or it could have been after God's people returned from exile and rebuilt the temple. We just really don't know. We know from verse 1 that the word of the Lord came to a prophet named Joel. We know that his name means Yahweh is God. We know his father was called Pethuel. But we don't know anything else about the context. The only detail that matters is the one that we're told. Joel was written after a terrible invasion of locusts. And the purpose of the book is to teach people how to act in response to this natural disaster. And that makes it a really useful book for every single one of us. Because we encounter and hear about natural disasters, um, wildfires, earthquakes, tsunamis, heat waves, and the like. And often we don't know how to react. When we're in the middle of a crisis, we're not always sure how to be a Christian in that moment. We don't always know what that might look like. Joel 1 begins to give us an answer. What should we do when disaster strikes? We've got two answers this evening and more to follow in future weeks. Let's put the first one up there on the screen. When disaster strikes, we should gather and mourn. Uh, This covers verses 2 to 14. And here there are um, five little sections there, five paragraphs calling different groups of people to weep. Verses 2 to 4 are addressed to the elders and all who live in the land. They're commanded to hear and listen to the following question from the Lord. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? The implied answer, of course, is no. These are unprecedented events in their long, creative, uh, their long collective memory. 
Um, the elders are singled out here as the senior generation with responsibility and authority to pass on this story uh, to those that follow. Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. These events are so extreme that they're never to be forgotten. And four generations of children are told because four waves of these locusts have swept through the land. The locust swarm, the great locust, the young locust, the other locusts. And um, if the first wave left anything, then the second, third, and fourth have eaten it. And we already have heard what that might be like. There is nothing left. In the Bible, we might be reminded of the eighth plague in Egypt. We also might think of the curses promised by God to Israel if they ever turned away from, uh, from their God. Deuteronomy 28 verse 38 says, You will sow much seed in the fields, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. Um, it's rather interesting um, in Joel that at no point does the prophet accuse them of any sin. He never says they've done any specific thing wrong. But could this event be a consequence of them turning away from God more generally? Have they called upon themselves the curse of the covenant? Um, second paragraph, verse 5 to 7. Here, uh, it's addressed to drunkards, drinkers of wine. And they're told to wake up, probably because they've slept themselves into a coma, drunk themselves into a coma. Um, but the point here isn't stop drinking so much. That would be good advice. The point here is wail because you can't drink anymore. Verse 6 talks about a nation. It's a mighty army without number that has invaded. Um, but this can't be an additional literal invasion because it's described in very metaphorical terms. Teeth of a lion, fangs of a lioness. It's just another way of describing the army of locusts that have swept through. Their ferocious teeth have destroyed every vine in sight. No more wine. That's why the drinkers of wine should wail. It's interesting as well, the repetition of the word my, between verse 5 and 7. My land, my vines, my fig trees. It's God speaking, and he's not detached from the plight of his people. He's not at a distance from this disaster. God himself is moved by the invasion and the destruction of what's his. I'll come back to verse 8 to 10 in a moment because the third and fifth paragraphs make the same climactic point. Um, so on to verses 11 to 12. These address the farmers and vine growers. They're told to despair, wail, and grieve because everything is withered and dried up. If you're like me, then you're not too familiar with farm life. Um, so we might not feel this as much as we could. Like if the tomato plant in your garden um, withers and dies, um, you're not, you might be a little bit upset, but you're not going to wail and grieve and go into a period of mourning, are you? Um, you're you and your family are the only ones that are going to be impacted. You could still easily go to the shops, you could get a takeaway, you can get something else from the fridge. But if you're a rural farmer um, hundreds, thousands of years ago, a failed harvest meant just devastation. Poverty for you, 
starvation for the community that depends on you. These farmers have already harvested the wheat, the grain. The whole village probably had a party in their honor. They stored it up in their barns, ready to be made into bread, ready to feed all the people's animals for the next year. And then one morning, they open the barn doors and there is literally nothing left. Can you imagine it? Now, uh, verses 8 to 10 and verses 13 to 14, the third and fifth paragraphs. So far, this locust swarm has been terrible for elders, terrible for wine drinkers, terrible for farmers. And I've already said that the climactic point is found in these two paragraphs here. Notice that verse 9 and verse 13 are almost identical. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. Grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. These paragraphs address the priests, and they show how this natural disaster has impacted worship. No harvest and no vines meant no grain and drink offerings at the temple. These were meant to be offered every single day, morning and evening. Without them, um, it was impossible to have burnt offerings either because they were part of the same package. Um, Without these, how could their sins be covered? How could their guilt be paid for? Without these, how could the people remain in relationship with God when these very sacrifices were supposed to make that possible? Now they're gone. This is the very worst impact of this swarm of locusts. At the center and at the end is this impact on worship. And I think we ourselves know that whenever disaster strikes, it always affects worship. Whenever something awful has happened, we just might not know what to say to God. If our, particularly if our understanding of Christianity is all praise and positivity, then we probably won't want to talk to God. But actually here we find a way to worship, even in crisis. The only appropriate response is to mourn. To mourn before God. As verse 8 says, Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Mourn like there's been a death. And that command is repeated in verse 13. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. There's been a terrible invasion, infestation of locusts and elders, drunkards, farmers, priests should mourn. So what should we do when disaster strikes? When we hear of wildfires and tsunamis and earthquakes or when crisis hits closer to home, what should we do? The very first Christian response is not sending aid and volunteering as necessary as those things are. The very first Christian response is not finding the silver lining. The first Christian response is certainly not trying to use theology to minimize what has happened. What we should do is mourn. That was Jesus' response when his friend Lazarus died. He didn't spring straight into action. He didn't find the silver lining. Don't worry, guys. He's going to be alive and well very soon. He let the emotional impact register. He showed that the most 
perfectly human response to disaster is weeping. That's what we should do too. Maybe you don't mourn with literal tears, that's fine. But acting Christianly in crisis situations can't be emotional distance and fake smiles. In a world that is broken by sin, terrible things do happen. And pretending otherwise by repressing any and all negative words and feelings is simply subhuman. Just like you might um, pick up another language on Duolingo, like Spanish or Mandarin. We must learn the language of lament. And that's not the same as merely praying. Um, Sometimes we hear mourn before the Lord and we think pray. But actually this is a step before that. It's simply laying out all we're feeling before our Father. It's feeling all that emotion in God's presence. And this isn't about shutting everyone out and weeping behind our own bedroom doors. Um, Look at what the priests are commanded in verse 14. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God. Our response when disaster strikes should be gathering to mourn together. Now, um, I should make this point. We live in a world where information travels awfully quickly. We hear about natural disasters every single month. Um, But this command in Joel was given in light of a local event that directly, personally affected people in the congregation. For us, there might be times where we gather uh, to mourn in light of a global event. That may well be a very, very helpful and good thing to do. But if there is a local disaster or a crisis that affects members of our congregation, we absolutely must gather. Um, I'll admit I haven't done this before. This might be at a whole church level. If there's a terrible event in London, I'm going to remember Joel chapter 1. But remember, we are all priests, and this building isn't the house of the Lord. We are, so it doesn't have to be a whole church level. Um, You might gather your small group if there's been a death in uh, the family. Um, Or you might invite a smaller group of Christian friends if you've received bad news. There doesn't have to be a Bible study. There doesn't have to be a talk. In some circumstances, there doesn't even have to be prayer. We can simply gather to weep with those who weep. In any of these cases, the Christian response to the disaster is to gather and mourn. Now to the second response. When disaster strikes, we should cry out to the Lord. Look at the whole of verse 14 this time. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. And if you look down at verse 15 through 20, those verses give the words of that cry. One of the priests might stand up and say these words in front of and on behalf of the people who have gathered. Now, the words are obviously situation specific. So 
we can't really treat them as like liturgy, as a model for us to follow. However, while they don't teach us what to cry, they do teach us how to cry. And as we look through these verses, we learn that our cries to the Lord should recognize two things. We should cry out to the Lord, recognizing that the day of the Lord is coming. And we should cry out to the Lord, recognizing that all creation needs him. Um, So to the first of those, we cry out to the Lord, recognizing that the day of the Lord is coming. That's what we see in verse 15. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. This phrase, the day of the Lord, comes up five times throughout the book of Joel. It's probably the most significant recurring theme of Joel's message. The prophets used it as a way to refer to the time where God would finally step in to establish his kingdom. And it was usually described in really ominous language of approaching judgment and destruction. We're going to hear a lot more about it next week. Do you remember the film Jurassic Park? The main characters are sitting in their cars in the middle of a storm, waiting for the power to come back on, and what do they notice? Ripples in the glass of water sitting on the dashboard, responding to the low tremor of approaching footsteps. The T-Rex is coming, and we know what's going to happen when it arrives. The cry of Joel 1 views the locust storm like those ripples in the glass. Something terrible has happened, and yet the first cry is not, alas, for this day. The cry in verse 15 is, alas, for that day. God wants them and us to see natural disasters as ripples, warnings, of approaching destruction. Every disaster is a reminder that all is not well with the world. They are warnings that a day of greater destruction is coming. Earthquakes, tsunamis, and fires are not necessarily God's response to personal sin. When there was a deadly tower collapse in Jerusalem... Jesus warned the people there not to blame the victims. That's Luke 13, if you want to check it afterwards. But natural disasters are the result of human sin in general. They're not necessarily the, um, the result of the sin of the people affected, but they are the result of human sin generally. When we turned our back on God, we broke his creation. When Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God. They caused a curse to be put on the earth. And so this world will always be broken, churning, burning until that problem of human sin is gone. We love the idea of a perfect world. We love the idea of a utopia free from disaster. But to achieve that, all evil must be destroyed All who do evil must be destroyed. However bad a locust swarm might be, however bad an earthquake or tsunami might be, the day of the Lord will be worse. 
it will be devastating. That's why when that tower uh, near Jerusalem fell, Jesus responded, those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. That should be our cry. We should cry out to the Lord, recognizing that the day of the Lord is coming. And we should cry out to the Lord, recognizing that all creation needs him. Looking at verses 16 to 20, it isn't surprising to read of Joel um, crying out to the Lord. What's surprising to me is how all the other animals seem to join in. Um, Verse 16 and 17 establish that there's nothing to eat. And then we hear the moan of cattle who don't have any grain. That's verse 18. We might expect sheep to survive because the only thing they eat is grass. But um, even they're suffering. Perhaps even the grass has been eaten by these locusts. And then in verse 20, the problem isn't just limited to the farm. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. Joel is calling to the Lord. The cattle are calling to the Lord. The wild animals are calling to the Lord. This really brings home the universal reality that the whole of creation groans. Those times of natural disaster reveal what is actually the case all the time. When God's protection and provision are withdrawn momentarily, when the curse of sin is allowed free reign just for a minute, then we realize just how much we depend on him. The whole of creation needs the protection and provision of its creator in every minute of every day. You need the protection and the provision of your creator every single day. Simply to keep going, humans and animals alike rely on the goodness of God. And this should affect how we cry out to the Lord. We do not cry to God as just one of many coping mechanisms when disaster strikes. We cry out of desperate need, panting, wailing, that he might move towards us in compassion. When disaster strikes, what should we do? How should we respond Christianly? There are several ways to answer that question, but the Holy Spirit has put this answer before us tonight. Gather, mourn, cry out to the Lord. When facing this broken world, sometimes the most Christian thing to do is to be tremendously upset. But we present this lament to our Father as an act of worship. Sometimes um, parents wonder why their kid can be um, delightfully full of smiles all day while they're at school, and then suddenly when the kid arrives home, um, they're just in floods of tears. The parent feels like they're doing something wrong. Um, But that's not the case. What's actually the case is the kid has been storing it up all day, and as soon as that kid gets to that place where they feel safe, as soon as that kid gets to the place where um, they're in the presence of the person they love and trust the most, all their biggest feelings come out. That's just how it works with kids. 
That's how it works with our Father too. Your Father welcomes your cries. He is a safe place to let out all your biggest feelings, even if you don't have words to express them, even if you're just groaning because of what is going on. And yet, while this chapter is spent in mourning, we do not mourn without hope. Joel's got another half chapter for us of lament, but very soon, everything is going to start sounding very different for them, for us, and for the whole of creation. Let me give you a hint from Romans chapter 8, the sort of thing to expect in the rest of Joel. Verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Let's pray. Father God, whatever, whatever personal crisis, whatever personal disaster we've got on our minds right now, whatever global disaster or crisis we're thinking about, Father, we just lay it all before you. Help us in those times where we don't know how to respond. Help us in those times where we feel just overwhelmed with grief. Help us to mourn well. Help us just to give you everything that we're feeling. Please convince us yet again that you are a safe place, that you are a loving father who wants to hear our cries. Thank you so much that that is who you are. Thank you that you've given us this book of Joel. And I pray that out of this place of lament, you would bring us such great hope. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.